listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, Chapter Leadership Committee member of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy, and Happy New Year. Thanks, Jeremy. Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you. This is episode 96 of Lighthearted, scheduled to enter the world on January 4th, 2021. I think we're all ready to move into 2021, leave uh, 2020 behind us. We're all hoping for a more normal year for tourism visiting lighthouses. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Before we talk about today's guest, we want to mention a couple of things that happened on this date. On January 4th, 1936, Keeper Thomas Jefferson Steinheis was awarded a Congressional Silver Lifesaving Medal for a rescue at Seven Foot Knoll Lighthouse in Baltimore. Early one morning in August 1933, during a hurricane, Steinheis said he was awakened by the touch of a mysterious, clammy hand on his arm. Steinheis felt sure that something was wrong, and then he heard four blasts of a tugboat's whistle. With 15-foot waves breaking over his boat, Steinheis went out and saved four men from the tug. He maintained that the cold hand he felt on his arm that morning had been the tug's engineer, who was one of several men who drowned in the incident. Steinheis felt that the engineer was telling him to save the others on the tug. Also, on January 4, 1809, the French educator and inventor Louis Braille was born. He first presented his revolutionary new method to help blind people read using their fingers in 1824 when he was only 15 years old. Braille, who was blind himself, once said, quote, Access to communication in the widest sense is access to knowledge, unquote. Today's episode of Lighthearted is the first of a two-part interview with author Diane Wolfer. She's an award-winning children's author who lives on the south coast of Western Australia, a teacher who has worked in Tokyo, Japan, as well as in Nepal. In addition to schools in her native Australia, Diane writes novels for children and young adults that focus on life in modern Australia and Pacific countries. Cindy, please help me tell our listeners more about Diane Wolfer. Sure, Jeremy. Diane Wolfer's 2009 book, Lighthouse Girl, won the West Australian Young Readers Book Award for picture books and has been adapted into a stage play. Diane was also the winner of the Western Australia Premiers Award and a Speech Pathology Australia Award in 2019 for The Dog with Seven Names, among many other awards. She's a passionate advocate for children's literature in Australia and served six years as Western Australia Advisor for the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Lighthouse Girl tells the poignant story of Faye Catherine Howe, who was the daughter of the lighthouse keeper at Breaksea Island in Western Australia. Around 30,000 soldiers left Australian shores to fight in World War I, and in late 1914, a fleet of 36 troop ships left Albany, bound for Egypt and Gallipoli. 15-year-old Faye was adept at signal communications, and as the men waited on their ships to leave Albany, she communicated with many of them using semaphore flags or Morse code. She relayed their messages to Albany, and from there they were routed to the men's families. The sight of Faye Howe waving to them from the island became a symbol of hope for the departing soldiers. For many of those men, their contact with Faye was their last connection to their home country. 
Dozens of them wrote cards and letters to Faye from overseas, sometimes addressed to the little girl on Breaksea Island. This year, Breaksea Island Lighthouse, built in 1902 and best known as the home of Faye Howe and her family, is undergoing a major restoration. The light station is owned and managed by the Australian Maritime Safety Authority and is one of more than 60 heritage-listed lighthouses in the country. The work includes restoration of the iron lantern and stairs, as well as the exterior stonework. I recently spoke with Diane Wolfer about Lighthouse Girl. Today we'll hear part one of the two-part interview. Part two will be posted this Wednesday, January 6th, and it will also include an interview with Faye Howe's son. Let's listen to part one of my conversation with Diane Wolfer now. I am speaking today with Diane Wolfer, who is a children's book author in Australia. And it's I'm speaking at, uh, let's see, what is it now? About uh, 7 p.m. New Hampshire time, where I am in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. But where Diane is, it's tomorrow morning. I, when I'm uh, doing this, I always feel like I'm speaking through a time machine or something. So anyway, uh, we are going to be talking mostly about Diane's book, Lighthouse Girl, today, which I, I really love. Thank you so much for being with me today, Diane. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for asking me. It's And the time difference is weird. It's always like if you go on a long flight, not that we're doing that now, um, you, you're flying back in time. And, and it, <laughs> that time difference, it's like you, you leave on one day and then you go back in time. It's it's really odd. But uh, yeah, it's it's lovely to be with you today to talk about lighthouses. So how was Saturday morning looking so far? <laughs> yeah, well, actually, the weather's looking good, which is mm-hmm. nice. We've had a bit of rain, but um, I think more forecast, but the garden's loving it. We've got rain, sun, rain, sun. It's it's good. Oh, that's it's good. good. It's too cold here, but <laughs> considering uh, it's not snowing yet anyway, that's a good thing. <laughs> so, uh, Diane, uh, let's talk about Lighthouse Girl. And uh, it's not a, a really new book. It was published in 2009. But it's still in print, right? And uh, that indicates it must still be doing pretty well. Yes, it seems to have taken off, and it's a lot of schools read it. It's a, a way it, because it's not too long. It's a way for, I guess, students. You can you can dip into history via a story, so that you're you're actually learning by stealth, if you like. The most important thing is that it's it's a good story, I hope. But if it brings awareness about our history, then to me that's that's a good thing. And people say that, one, they love it as a story, which I'm really glad about, but also that what's unusual about it is that it's World War One, but from a female perspective and also from the perspective of those who stayed home and many books around the commemoration, the 100-year commemoration. There are a lot of books, but I think this one in particular, it's those two features, the the female point of view, but also that it's from the point of view of the people who who stayed home. It looks at that as well. So, yeah, it's great. It stayed in, in print, and then I didn't plan to write another two that link to it, and I have, and so I suppose that has continued the interest as well. Lighthouse Girl is the story of Faye Howe, who is the daughter of a lighthouse keeper on Breaksea Island in Western Australia. You yep, do pronounce it right. Breaksea, correct? Breaksea, yeah. And okay. it's called Breaksea because mm-hmm. if you once, we have this massive King George Sound, uh, huge, huge harbour. It's like Sydney Harbour, if you can imagine that. It's, it's huge. Once you go past that, 
then the sea, it's the Southern Ocean, so you're getting some serious swell. There are two islands at, at that point. One's called Michaelmas and the other one, Break Sea, which has the lighthouse. Once you go past that, then really you're out into the ocean. The city uh, there near Breaksea Island is Albany. Is that correct? Oh, well done. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we have Albany, New York. Albany is the capital of New York. I know. I but know. I, I think it was one of the, the, the videos uh, I watched uh, related to this where it was said Albany. So I have to admit I cheated a little bit. That's how I knew. Yeah, that. no, I, no, it's Albany. And even more confusingly, I went to high school in a place called Aubrey, which the spelling is very similar, but um, it is Albany is how we say it. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I'm always nervous about regional pronunciation. I don't always get them right, but I try. Oh, well, well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So let's talk about the, the book. First of all, how did you discover the story of Fei Hao? Well, it goes back even be, well beyond 2009. In 2005, I was uh, here in Albany reading the weekend newspaper, and uh, there was an article called The Long Goodbye, and it spoke about Anzac Day to us is our, it's a very big military remembrance day. It's the day that soldiers, there was a disastrous landing on the Gallipoli Peninsula where many Australian New Zealand soldiers died. Um, so it was in the lead up to Anzac Day and the article called The Long Goodbye was talking about how troop ships had gathered in Albany in King George Sound, coming from different ports all around Australia and New Zealand. So they gathered into this great big convoy that then sailed off thinking they were going to England to fight or France, but then um, ended up going to Gallipoli. So when I was reading this article by Ron Crittle, there was a little paragraph, which I can read. I've got it here. I've got the the old, (laughs) it's really old. So it's just talking about that. And then it says, Perth man Don Watson tells of his mother, Faye Catherine Howe, daughter of the Breaksea Island lighthouse keeper. She was just 15 and stood on the island signalling to the departing fleet. It says in Morse code, but it was probably semaphore. Almost certainly the last human contact with Australia. Numerous postcards came back to Albany from the Middle East addressed to the little girl on Breaksea Island. So it was that that idea that letters would come across the world addressed to the little girl on Breaksea Island. So I, I wanted to find out more about her. So I looked back those days using the, the phone book, um, looked for Perth man Don Watson. Now, Perth is the capital city of Western Australia, so there's, there's a lot of people there. And um, there are a lot of Watsons. So I just went through them, ringing one after the other, and until eventually I found a guy who, when I said, was your mother a lighthouse keeper off Albany, didn't hang up, <laughs> um, who said, yes, actually, she was. And uh, he is an elderly gentleman. He um, and his wife asked me out for lunch. It's a five-hour drive from where I live. So I went and had lunch with them. I really wanted to get my hands on the postcards. Um, but sadly, when Faye passed away, as often happens with people's papers and things, they were lost to history. So I nearly gave up then thinking, well, if I can't get my hands on these postcards that were sent to Faye across the world. Um, But in the meantime, because it had taken me a while to find him, I'd already collected some old postcards and the stories that that families wrote to their soldiers and backwards and forwards were so evocative that it had really captured my attention. And I walk my dog on a beach that looks out across to Breaksea Island. And I just kept imagining that little girl she wasn't that little she was about 15 but from the soldier's point of view and in that era that still was 
uh, an innocent younger woman. Yeah, I just kept thinking about her and the story wouldn't let me go, I suppose. So that's that's how it started. Lighthouse Girl is a children's picture book, but it's it's me, it's certainly longer than, than most. It's how many pages? 120-something? Oh, about 120, I think. Yeah, got it right here next to me. Yes, 120. Uh, yep. Yeah. And uh, there's tremendous detail in it, of course, uh, in your writing, a lot of historical detail and uh, illustrations. Besides the drawings, there's a lot of other illustrations, which we'll talk about in a little while. When you decided to write a book about Fay Howe, how did you describe exactly what form the book would take? Well, I had written novels before that for um, teenage readers, um, and I had written one picture book which the, the picture book format in children's literature, it's normally 32 pages. Um, books are usually printed eight pages at a time. And so 32 pages is the industry standard. So I tried to fit this story into 32 pages. I had written a picture book before, which was about a Japanese and Australian soldier who met in battle in Papua New Guinea along the Kokoda Track, which is another, another big historic um, moment for Australia. So I tried to squeeze this story um, into 32 pages and it was just it was just too big. And I also wanted to include these beautiful old archival photos that I'd found and it was just really squashed. So back then there wasn't really the format of longer than 32 pages wasn't a thing really. So I sent it to um, Fremantle Press who published my other books and luckily, the children's editor, Kate Sutherland, she's a really wise woman. And so she wanted to do the story. She felt that it had that, that heart and was of historical significance. She said, well, we don't have to stick to 32 pages. We'll just make it longer. Let's see how long it needs to be. And it needed to be 120. <laughs> that allowed room for the layering of the story, but also the old archival photos, which some of them are incredible. They they are telling a whole other story themselves. Mm -hmm. But it also allowed room for the illustrator. The story itself is told from two points of view, so or this first person and third person point of view, which allowed me to go deeper. So you've got the storyteller voice, but you've also got her diary account, which was a really useful vehicle for me to get into her head and capture that young woman on the cusp or child becoming a young woman at, at this momentous time. So there's all these layers in there and it, it just really did need that space. So I was really fortunate and grateful to Fremantle Press, who are a small independent publisher, to not make it have to fit some industry standard to let it be what it needed to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that is part of the reason for its success because it was allowed the shape that it needed to have. I imagine it being a book that a parent and a child might read together over maybe a few nights, something like that. Does that yes. is that something that you've heard uh, might happen? It it is. It's also it's been embraced by schools as well because even the readers who are not as confident, there's a lot of illustrative material to help them along, and. They're curious, there's this postcard formats and there's little posters and it's a bit like a diary. Um, the designer, Tracy, Tracy um, Gibbs, was amazing as well, where she, she made it look like an old-fashioned diary. So 
although again like the format is not like a normal picture book or it's not like anything really it is marketed to younger readers but my experience is that older people particularly love it um Mm -hmm. those seniors have got a closer connection to world war one um particularly when it first came out and there was a lot of world war one commemorative events then it's like they can remember perhaps their father or their uncle so so they're closer um or a grandfather whereas now it's a few more it's more removed seniors love it almost more than young children so it really is uh, a book that can be read by anybody and shared and I think it's also been enjoyed by men more so than perhaps some sometimes men drop out of the reading process or they're more into non-fiction and this seems to this and the following one Lighthouse Boy that they seem to be popular as well. Let's talk about Fei Hao a bit more. What made her so important to those soldiers leaving uh, Albany in 1914? She perhaps represented innocence and their families. So there was a girl in real life, her mother had died earlier that year and her big sister had died the year before. So not that they knew that, but so there's a young woman, I guess, reminiscent of their daughters or sisters, um, the women in their life, those who were those who were waving them farewell, it's like she waved them all farewell on behalf of the families uh, without taking it a, a step too far. They'd already been at, they'd already been on their troop ships for a week. They could see the land. They were anchored right nearby, but they couldn't get off because Albany was a small town in those days and I think having you know, 30,000 men suddenly <laughs> running around town logistically wasn't going to work. Some did marching through the... They marched through the streets, but... So they couldn't get off their troop ships. They were stuck out there and they had a few days while the convoy, this great convoy, gathered. So they were uh, fishing or they were writing messages which they put into into bottles and threw overboard saying, you know, if you find this, please pass on my farewell to my family. Many of those bottles washed up just around on the beach, just our local beach, and people did send them, but probably a lot sank as well. And then when they saw this girl, and I guess they just started signalling to her and then realised, well, she had access to the, the telegraph, so she could send their final messages. We don't know how many she did send, but Don Watson, when I uh, spoke with him, said that when he was a little boy, he was allowed to, if he was good, take the postcards off the from the shelf, um, these beautiful old embroidered postcards and read them. And he said there were dozens. So that's stories get lost to time. But but we know because Don's um, still with us and that's being a primary um, reference, he he says he remembers reading dozens of them. And so, so I guess to get back to your question, she represented their families. She represented perhaps for some of them, innocence and women what they in those days were going off to fight for freedom but yeah I I guess it's they'd already been at sea as as I said for a week or so and some may have been wondering about their decision they wouldn't have left home before they're very young a lot of them and it was a big grand adventure they thought they'd only be away for a few months and uh, Mm -hmm. maybe after a few days at sea they were already wondering if they were (laughs) what, what on earth they were doing and I guess then it's back to lighthouses. Lighthouses are a symbol of, of, it's a beacon of hope. And if someone's feeling lonely, 
a lighthouse is a beacon for them. And by extension, Faye, I think, was both of those things as well. She she was a symbol of hope and a beacon and of what they were fighting for, I think. You mentioned waving in addition to taking messages from these men and relaying them to her to their families there is some amazing old footage that we have at the museum here where cinematographers went to her island that that part of the book is true the cinematographers did go across to film the departure so this would have been very exciting for Faye who normally was her dad and the other keeper so there's these cinematographers have come over and there's this footage of the, the ships going out past Brakesea Island. So, yes, yeah, she was, should have been waving with all her might, I think. <laughs> yeah. While they were in King George Sound, she would have been taking the messages and, and relaying them or even just waving to them. I mean, she's a young girl there. Didn't have a lot. Well, she had a lot of jobs to do. She had a lot of chores that she had to do. But as far as things like this didn't happen every day, <laughs> I don't think the world has ever seen or ever will see a convoy like that because there were 30 sh- 36 troop ships at anchor. There were the, the battleships that were protecting them and just so many exciting moments. So the New Zealanders, the 10, 10 of the ships were New Zealanders and the Japanese Ibuki, Japan being our ally in those days, the Japanese Ibuki went across to New Zealand to help es- escort them to King George Sound, and then so the New Zealanders were actually the closest ones to her island, but for the reasons of the story, I I didn't necessarily highlight that. Everyone would have been feeling very patriotic. Australia has a long Indigenous history, but as far as federation, when the the different states joined up to become a country as such, was only 13 years earlier. England was seen as the mother country, and uh, everyone was feeling very patriotic. So this big moment where young Australia, the colonial young Australia, was stepping up to go and help the mother country. There's a lot of that kind of historical referencing going on as well, and I think she would have been waving a lot. <laughs> Man, it's too bad those uh, that film crew didn't take footage of her waving to the ships. Oh, I know. Oh, <laughs> that so would have amazing. been so good. That would have been so good. I know. I would have loved that. Um, yeah. Well, I have well to... and also we didn't have, uh, there were no photographs of, of Faye, so we I had to imagine what she looked like, but of a young woman anyway. There were her as an older woman. Particularly for the illustrator, for Brian, he had to imagine what she looked like. And to maintain continuity, we used the children's publisher's niece, Ali, as a model so that he could get the continuity of her features. So then what was really spooky in a great way was that just before the book came out, and it took four years from idea the research was just really painstaking. Just before the book was being sent to print, we Don Watson found a photograph of his mother as a young woman. That's the photograph that is now in the book. But what's really special is that she resembles Ali, the model. So the cover of the book, if you look at the cover of the book and the photo of Faye, there's this uncanny resemblance. And there mm-hmm. are there are a few other strange coincidences that, that I think made this book need to happen. When I went out to, I've been out three times to Breaks the Island, and on the last visit, the film rights have been optioned. So um, it's, a, it's a long, slow process, but who knows? And it doesn't mean it will happen, but I, I do hope it does. So oh. I went out um, with the, the fellow who's bought the rights, who's an Australian living in the US. 
we went out to the building. There's two lighthouse keeper cottages and one of them, I've just always had a feeling that's where Faye lived, but also there's one particular room that I just get a bit of a feeling for. Anyway, after we that photograph had came to light and we've really looked carefully at that photograph, she's leaning on a very unusual um, planter that you, you'd put a planter, wooden planter, and since the book's come out, I've been contacted by descendants of other lighthouse keepers and one sent me an email and said, we have the planter that is in that photograph. So I know that that photograph was taken at Breaksea. Up until then, it could have been taken anywhere. So mm -hmm. when I went, I tried to find the exact place that photo might have been taken. And I think I have it where there's a certain area where the plaster and the original brick comes out. You know, things like that are exciting. It's like detective work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a big puzzle you're putting together. I'm curious to hear more about the film rights. Maybe we can save that for, for near the end. But you mentioned Brian, the illustrator, Brian Simmons. Uh, it kind of looks like charcoal sketches. I don't know if they're actually done with charcoal or not. Maybe you can tell me. But is there a reason why that particular style was chosen? Yes. Uh, it's unusual when you're writing a book for children, as I'm sure you realize, the so often the, uh, the illustrator is selected to link to the text if it's a soft you know bedtime dreamy kind of story it might be a softer watercolor but many picture books are bright and fun but this book needed something completely different and again Kate Sutherland is a very wise publisher and felt that we needed something something old-fashioned some sketches something that would link to the story very hard to find an illustrator who has that style who does children's books so she knew that Brian gives classes. She knew he works with charcoal. And so she approached him and he hadn't done a book before, but he um, was really interested in the idea. And he did, as you as you said, he, he only uses a stick of charcoal and an eraser. And the illustrations are huge. And so he he can, if he gets it right, he can do it in about an hour each one. He doesn't always get each one right but it's like watching a magician he's just bringing he's got this stick of charcoal and he's just creating this incredible illustration it's he's so talented um i know i've heard I've, we've done talks together and sometimes people say oh you're so lucky to be that talented and he'll say look it's 50 years of hard work to make that luck right. <laughs> so he's been he's been an artist for a long time and he since has put out some books of his own about the beaches and the rivers here in, in Western Australia um, using colour this time. But he's, his artwork has added such depth to the story and they really, I'm sure that's a huge factor in making the books so special because he's, he just brings out something, an extra layer, but it also marries really well with the text and the old photographs. Have you worked with them on other books? He's Brian did the second Light Light Horse Boy book, and then he also did In the Lamplight. Getting the word light into the third one was really had to stretch the brain. <laughs> um, and they're they're both World War One books as well. So there's overlap characters. The character Charlie, I'm just doing another one that's got Jim in it, so I have to. <laughs> Jim and Charlie are in. So Charlie, of course, is in Lighthouse Girl. Yep. He then is. We, we hear his story in Lighthorse Boy and then his best mate is Jim. So Jim and Charlie go off to war and 
In Lighthorse Boy, it also explores the role of the animals that were taken to war, particularly the horses of the 130,000 Australian horses that went to World War I. Only one came home, and that was um, Sandy, the horse of Major General Bridges. Um, that's a whole other story which I'm actually coincidentally working on at the moment. I, after three books, I thought that's it for World War I for me, but the story of Sandy the war horse is, is still just calling me. But he's worked on those three books and again it's been that first person third person shifting backwards and forwards with the charcoal illustrations and the archival photos i was just i was just flipping through the book and my favorite personal favorite illustration is on page 75 it has uh faye by a window looks like she's sewing by the window and the text is about uh, new year's eve it says she's oh, yeah. watching the Al albany i almost said albany uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> watching the Albany lights flicker on the water. Uh, yes. And uh, which may reminds me of how poetic a lot of the the writing is. There's some really a lot of really beautiful phrases in there. Oh, th thank um, you. That's very kind. I really like the page where oh there's a couple of pages of course, but where she's looking up at the stars um yes. because in that photo she really looks like I don't have it on hand, but the the photograph of Ali that's particularly beautiful. And this this old archival photo of the kangaroo, the yes, I love Australian that. soldiers with the kangaroo uh, below the Egyptian pyramids. Yeah, that that photo was what led me to do the second book because I thought, what on earth is that kangaroo doing in the pyramids? And it's from the Australian War um, Museum, or so it's it's not doctored clearly. It's a it's. I was curious at how how many mascots the soldiers took. And then when I went to Gallipoli, it was oh, really poignant to then see there's the photos of the Australian soldiers um, with their little mascots. But then in the Turkish trenches, they also have got their own little dogs and rabbits and that these men, that the animal mascots brought them, I guess, a, some degree of comfort to have unconditional love from a, a, a little animal, perhaps, or, or something to remind them of home. That, so that's what led to the second one. <laughs> right. That makes a yeah. lot of sense. So you mentioned Charlie a few minutes ago talking about, well, of course, he's a, a character in uh, Lighthouse Girl and then the central character in Light Horse Boy. He was an invention. He's, uh, of course, uh, Faye is real, her father, uh, the assistant, and, and uh, I think at least maybe a, one or two other people in the book. But Charlie it was not a real person. You invented him. What made you decide to create that character? I needed the freedom to give one character whatever I wanted to give him as far as making the story work. I didn't want to link him to one particular soldier, partly because, well, I would have wanted to check with descendants and make sure that was okay. Whereas with Faye, I had the blessing of her son. So he was really interested in the project all along and he's I've become friends with the family. Choosing a particular soldier, particularly... I guess I didn't think it through in great detail, but he can be every man, if you like. He can be any man at all. Doesn't have to be pinned down to one town that he came from or, though, of course, I do say where he comes from in the second one. But what was really useful by having him as a fictitious character, particularly in Light Horse Boy, was I wanted my characters within the realm of belief to move between different arenas of fighting uh, and different iconic battles and 
what I discovered, I'm not a military historian by any means, but what I discovered is depending on where you signed up, if you signed up from a certain little town in Australia, then you would have been in a certain unit and that unit went on a certain ship and that ship then, that unit went to certain battles and when a lot of the men were killed, then units joined up. So having someone fictitious gave me the freedom to put my character where I needed to put him and it would have been really challenging. For example, at the beginning of Light Horse Boy, the Jim character who's best mates with Charlie I've made him a farrier because it's the mechanic of World War One, really, isn't it? Um, all those horses' hooves needed attention. And so I made him a farrier and I made him a good farrier. So because he signs up with Charlie from a small town, he has to be on a certain ship. But I needed to get him onto the flagship where Major General Bridges, the owner of Sandy, the one horse, who came home. So I had to get him from the Wiltshire, which is where he and the two men were on at the front of the column onto the flagship so fictitiously you can only stretch it so far with which battle where you move them around to but if I hadn't made him fictitious I would have needed to stick to one man's military journey and that would have one taken me probably years to research to find the right man like a needle in a haystack Um, but also it just gave me a little bit of flexibility that I needed plus without trampling on anyone's memories of their of their veteran. But he also serves a dramatic, very much a dramatic purpose in the story. Yes, uh, totally. He, yeah. I mean, she needed a love interest. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. And, and that's part of what makes the, the whole, without giving too much away, <laughs> uh, maybe I should say spoiler alert, but I, I don't want to spoil it. But, you know, she goes through so many emotions knowing he's he's over there and waiting for letters from him and everything. And that was, I thought was a, a great idea. Uh, you know, I was aware that it, it was fictitious, that part of it, but dramatically it works so, so beautifully. I just think it was a, a very good idea. Oh, thank you. And look, who knows, in those dozens of postcards that are lost to history, there may have been a few. I mean, in those days, a lot of those young men wanted someone to write to. Right. And there weren't much and, more than 15, a lot of them. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Some were very young. Uh, and if they didn't have family, then I, I guess when other men were getting letters from their sweethearts, they would want someone to be writing to them or, or someone to care if they if things happened to them. And I think that com- that was a lot of com- those letters were such a comfort to many of the men and the nurses in World War One. That was that was important. I also think that the, a young woman that age, in the innocence of that era, would have you know having a crush on someone is is quite a normal thing at that twenty teen kind of age. And so it's also her exploring herself as a young woman what love's all about. She hasn't. She, she's a very sheltered woman out there on the. She doesn't, she doesn't get to meet a lot of people. So. Yeah, meeting men or meeting these young soldiers through letters or through particular letters. You'd also say things that you might not say in in real life. I know here in Albany in World War II even, we had um, visiting US soldiers and when I was doing a writing project with some of the, the, the older Albany residents, one was writing about as a young girl she went to a, a place called Emu Point to hire a rowboat and 
when they got there, she says, we behold an amazing sight. <laughs> and there's all these ladies and US servicemen lying on the grass kissing. She said, just kissing and kissing. And you wouldn't even be allowed to lie there kissing today. I mean, that's not what people go to, you know, it's a playground for little kids. You don't go there lying on the grass <laughs> when they're kissing. But during wartime, there are different rules. I think during wartime, these men are going and might not come back for a start or who knows what they're facing. And so some of the societal rules were loosened a little bit and World War I was such a, a time of, of changing society. So even on the, the far western point of, of uh, Australia, some of those, that could happen. You obviously researched life at lighthouses in that era quite a bit. Your research shows uh, it all seemed very authentic to me. How deeply did you get into that subject, the subject of lighthouse life for families at that time? Well, each lighthouse, as as your pods all say, your your series shows, it's different. And uh, I've just finished reading Shona Riddell's fabulous book, Guiding Lights, which yes. and I heard your your terrific interview with her, which led me to the book, which was great. It's different depending on your lighthouse. Some of those lighthouses seemed fearsome, <laughs> whereas Breaksea Island is, look, in winter, it can get wild out there, but we're not talking about those, you know, 20-metre waves. Where that doesn't, we're not getting that. However, if, if salt water gets into their water tanks, then, um, you know, they're in trouble because that's their drinking supply. So there are things like that. So I wanted to get across there and be at the island but it's a nature reserve so you're not allowed to go there you have to seek permission from parks and wildlife at the time so the only way I could get there was by volunteering by knowing somebody and volunteering to then uh, carry wood all weekend for the fellow who was re-roofing the cottages because they'd uh, they would be lost to history over time they're crumbling and so there was a project the money, of course, is a lot to get building materials out there by helicopter. So I volunteered to go and help just be a labourer, basically, for a weekend and carry wood. So getting across there was really important. Even when I was there, I wasn't allowed to wander around. They're really strict. So the only way I could actually see the island was with that builder taking me on certain paths. They're very protective, which is great. It's a, it's a nesting site and um, historic site. But we did sleep in in the old cottage, which in a, in a swag, you know, just in a sort of a camping bed swag, we call it. I don't know if you've got the name of a swag is like waltzing Matilda carrying a swag on your back. It's like a roll up bed. Uh, a roll up bed. I'm not sure if we have a, <laughs> another name for it. It's like them. a canvas. We just call it a swag. They're pretty fancy swags. Now it used to just be a roll up bed. Um, but anyway, we were sleeping. Well, sleeping is not like a sleeping bag. It, no. It's better than a sleeping bag. It's like okay. you would put the sleeping bag in the swag. So okay. it's like something better than a sleeping bag to give you more protection. So we we were, had swags and so we just had swags in the lighthouse. So, you know, different rooms. There was also um, a couple who'd gone over to do some other restorative garden work. And so that was how I got across. So even though getting there was really... Um, well, getting there was interesting because we went across on this little boat and uh, to get onto the island, the only way is via, there's a jetty that hangs out with a, a drop ladder, like a swinging caving ladder, say. And so you have to get as close to the ladder as possible on the boat in a big swell um, or in a regular swell. 
and then jump onto the ladder and then scramble up this swinging ladder to get onto the jetty. I'm a reasonable swimmer, so I wasn't too worried about, you know, I guess I could have had another goal if I'd fallen in. But uh, once you're on the jetty, then it's about a half-hour walk up the zigzag track to the lighthouses. So just walking up there was really interesting for me because Faye each month would walk down with her donkey to collect supplies down the same path. And uh, if the supply boat, if the sea was too rough, the supply boat didn't come. So she had to go and shoot mutton birds and make soup. Just getting out there and going up to the old lighthouse, which isn't huge by lighthouse, it's quite squat. It was built by, not many buildings are built by convicts in Western Australia, but this one is. I think what was the most, what made the most impression was how you're surrounded by sea and sky and you really are like you're in another world. There's just blue everywhere. There's blue sea, there's blue sky and an island that you could, it's a reasonable size. You can take at least half an hour to walk around the whole thing. It's it's quite a nice, um, and there's all these mutton bird burrows and at night, uh, they come flying in where they've been fishing off the continental shelf and just fill the sky with squawking and squawking. It's uh, So those being out there and uh, having those experiences helped me bring her island to life. Um, there really is a place called Seal Rock and you can see the, um, the whales from there in the season. The whales just go right past. And just salt, there's salt on everything from the breeze. So things like that, looking back across to the town and feeling you really are cut off out there, but in a beautiful way, I was really happy to be cut off for a few days. Um, yeah. yeah, lovely. Yeah, well, that's that's so great that you had a chance to spend some time out there. Would you say that uh, in general that Actually, working on... Just, sorry, sorry, go the, ahead. I, that, was, that was the first time, which was amazing to get oh, out okay. there. There's another time, yeah. Well, there's two other times. So I've been out sure. three times altogether. Mm-hmm. The second time was during the commemoration the 100 year commemoration of the the troops leaving albany and there was some a lot of media attention so a a tv program called destinations wa wanted to to do an interview though everyone was everyone was looking for an angle and a girl on a lighthouse waving goodbye to the troops was a good angle i think for it's a different angle right to the soldiers so they said um would you like to come out to break sea with us in the helicopter and we'll interview you out there it's like Uh, yes (laughs) of course I would like to do that but the day we were to go out was incredibly windy and we weren't sure if the helicopter could even land so it went round and round the lighthouse I don't know how many times until the very skillful pilot managed to land further down the hill on a bit of granite but it, it meant that I got to see the lighthouse from above with a helicopter in a helicopter and then the storyline was so lovely these guys I was up at the cottage and it was like well, we're out of Braxy Island and, oh, here's Diane Wolfer. And it was, it was such a funny storyline because, of course, it had taken us a long time to get out there. I didn't just happen to be there. <laughs> but, yeah, so now you can go in summer. You can hire a helicopter if you want. It's obviously expensive. But you can buddy up with some other people and, and all go out. And the, the pilot has the keys to the cottages so he can take you into the cottages, which is pretty special. Yeah. Would you say that doing Lighthouse Girl and also your experiences with Break Sea Island, are you, do you consider yourself a lighthouse buff? Did it make it into a lighthouse buff? Oh, goodness. When I listen to your, your previous podcast, I, I think buff would not be, I, I mean, you've got some seriously people who really know their lighthouses. I don't, I love them. I, I find that like your listeners and the people who I've heard you interview, there is something so special about lighthouses. They're, 
the beacon, the hope, they're evocative. They're in really interesting places and you're really out there with the weather in a way that most of us in our homes, you're not out there with the weather like that. So all of those aspects, uh, it's wild. There's a wildness to it that I guess not many of us get to experience anymore. So I'm, I love lighthouses. I'm passionate about them. I don't know that I know a lot about them. Um, well, that's okay. You, yeah. you just convinced me that you're a lighthouse buff from the things you just said. <laughs> got the emotional essence of them that's more important than knowing the names of hundreds of lighthouses right diane wolfer's book lighthouse girl and its sequels light horse boy and in the lamplight are available from amazon and other online booksellers you can also read more about diane and her books at dianewolfer.com that's diane with two n's dianewolfer.com it was a real pleasure talking with Diane, and I just find the story of Fei Hao so fascinating and moving. The episode featuring part two of the interview will be released on Wednesday, January 6th. It will also include an interview with Fei Hao's son, Don Watson, and his wife and daughter. Thanks to everyone associated with the U.S. Lighthouse Society in this country and around the world. To read all about the Society's mission to save lighthouses and their history, check out uslhs.org. Donations and memberships support this podcast. And don't forget to check out the Society's news blog at news.uslhs.org and also the social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our sincere thanks go out to everyone everywhere who works to preserve lighthouses or any kind of history. We're all on the same team. If you listen to this podcast using Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light.